What comes to mind when one thinks of the third commandment, not taking the Lord's name in vain, is God's name being attached to certain four-letter words or it being used as an expletive or something like that. And though that is genuine disobedience to the command, it's more expansive in its scope. It's not merely about our words, but really the entirety of our lives. The third commandment is about the dignity and pride that comes in bearing God's name, in being a holy priesthood on the earth. The name that we carry is glorious, and we are commanded to carry it in a worthy manner. So this morning, we'll consider just what it means to carry the name in the first place, then what it means to take the name in vain, and of course, how Christ is the true name-bearer, how he is the one who truly honors the name. And after all that, we'll circle back around to consider three practical things about what we can do to fulfill the commandment today and please the Lord. So let's begin with the actual texts of the commandment. It's Exodus chapter 20, verse 7. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not leave him unpunished who takes his name in vain. The commandment, we said, is about our words. Yahweh, the covenant name, is not to be used in an unworthy manner or to endorse unworthy things. Instead, it's to be kept holy and treated with due reverence and honor and respect in our speech. It's not an insignificant thing to take this name upon our lips. But that's not the only place that we take the name. Take in the original language is the word nasa, and it means quite literally to lift or to carry or to take up. So Israel, the people of God, in some sense, carried the name and took it with them wherever they went, not only in their words, but in the entirety of their lives. So if they take up the name, it's only because really the name has taken them up first. So prior to establishing the commandments of which we're reading in chapter 20, God speaks to his people um, and reminds them what he's done for them in chapter 19. This is Exodus 19.4. It says, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. So Yahweh bore the nation. There's our word again, Nassah. He carried them, plucked them from danger, and took them up on eagles' wings and brought them near. There is, right there, the simple logic of the commandment. Yahweh takes up his people, and his people take up his name. Israel becomes then his representative on earth because they bear his name. Now, the rationale for the commandment is still deeper. It's intimately connected with the second commandment. Going back, humans are forbidden from making images, 
because, as we saw, they are the image, created in the image and likeness of God. The divine presence on earth is not located in statues and figurines, but in every human person. The trouble is, humans have forsaken their image-bearing vocation, called to be the divine light on earth, to manifest God's presence, they became darkened. And so this is where the third commandment comes in. Unlike the other gods of the nations, this god cannot be represented by carved images, but instead wills to be represented by the people to whom he has revealed his name. So we see in the third commandment, humanity's original image-bearing vocation is restored in Israel. Humans were created in the image, but fractured that image. And then God takes up his people through the Exodus and restores that original vocation upon them. He gives them his name. They are to bear his presence to the world. So the divine name is revealed to them alone. And again, they bear it to the entire world. And another way to frame this is in terms of priesthood. Now, still in Exodus chapter 19, just the next few verses, verses 5 and 6, the Lord says this, Now then, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be my own possession among all the peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you, you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. So, to say that the image is restored in the people of Israel, that humanity's original vocation is taken up in these people, is the same thing as saying that they become a holy priesthood to the entire world. Again, notice the context. All the earth is mine, God says, and and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests. So, the nearness with which he comes to these people positions them uniquely in relation to all other people. They bear his name, and therefore they image his presence. They are a light to the world, a holy priesthood. Now, the question is, what does it mean to be a priest? If humans are, rather, if the nation of Israel is made a kingdom of priests, what does that mean? Now, I think the answer is found at least in part, in the attire that the high priest um, wears. This is Exodus chapter 28, verse 29. It says, Aaron, who was the first high priest, shall carry the names of the son of Israel in the breastpiece of judgment over his heart when he enters the holy place for a memorial before the Lord continually. So, As the high priest ministered in the holy place, he wore a breastplate with twelve gemstones on it, and and on each of these gemstones were engraved the names of the twelve tribes of Israel. And the text says specifically that the high priest is to carry, there's our word again, Nassah, he's to carry these names into Yahweh's presence. So his service in the tabernacle and more specifically, in the Holy of Holies, 
was for the nation of Israel. Symbolically, he carried them over his heart, and he served on their behalf. So there's one part of the high priest's attire, but he also had something else that's of importance. This is just a few verses later, verse 36 of chapter 28. It says, You shall also make a plate of pure gold and shall engrave on it with the engravings of a seal, holiness to the Lord. So, the high priest bore the names of Israel upon his heart in these gemstones, and with this almost sash kind of plate that was right below his turban, um, he bore the name Yahweh on his forehead. Now, in the Hebrew, the inscription for us, holiness to the Lord or holy to the Lord, is only two words. It's Kodesh la Yahweh. Now, the la in front of the name was customary for indicating ownership, right? So, bearing la Yahweh upon his forehead, it was clear. The high priest was set apart for Yahweh's service, belonging to none but him. Holiness to the Lord. So, the high priest really is the entire nation in miniature. The role he served to the people of Israel is the role that they served to the world. The people bear Yahweh's name on their foreheads and the nations upon their heart. Again, as a priestly nation. So here, what the third commandment requires starts to become clear. Israel is to carry this name. It's been stamped onto their forehead, so to speak. They are to keep the covenant, and in so doing, they would become a holy nation, and they would image God to the nations. Christopher Wright, in his book, The Mission of God, states it as follows. Israel is going to live on a very open stage. There will be nothing cloistered or closeted about Israel's existence or history. For good or ill, Israel was visible to the nations, and in that posture, they could be either a credit or a disgrace to Yahweh their God. And tragically, they were the latter rather than the former. There were bright spots. Think Esther and Nehemiah and Daniel. But on the whole, the people proved to be unworthy to bear Yahweh's name, and they went into exile. And we'll come to Christ's role in this in a minute, but I want to fast forward just a second to the church's role in this. Because Israel's vocation as a holy priesthood is uh, passed on to the church, or rather, the church is invited into Israel's vocation. So Peter, the chief apostle, writing to beleaguered churches, says this, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. For once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So Peter appropriates Israel's original vocation 
and applies it to the church. In Christ, it is extended to the church, a people composed of Jew and Gentile, the wild olive branch being grafted into the natural olive tree. So in baptism, the triune name is bestowed upon us, believers from all the nations. The church bears the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, the name which we were baptized in upon our foreheads. And as such, bearing God's name, being his representatives, we are a holy priesthood to the entire world. We image him and we declare his praise to the nations. So finally, something of the great dignity and responsibility that the third commandment places on us emerges from darkness into light. The triune name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit has been set upon you. Wherever you go, the name of God goes with you. Whatever you do, the name of God does with you. Wherever you, whatever you say, rather, the name of God says with you. You are the image, the mediator of the divine presence on earth, to those around you especially. And that realization right, that God has put his name on us, and then he's counted us worthy in Christ to bear his name, ought to fill us at once with a holy pride and fear. Now pride, because the triune name has been put upon us, he has made us his children and a priesthood to the nations. And fear, for the same reason, because the triune God has put his name upon us. He's made us his representatives and thus, in some sense, responsible for his reputation. So, we've seen then, to carry, take the name in vain or to bear it uh, in our lives is not merely something we do with our mouths, but the entirety of our lives. Everywhere we go, we take God's name with us. And this brings us to now the second part of the verse. Given this name, there's one thing that we're not to do with it, and that is to take it in vain. Now, in the Hebrew, the word vain simply means emptiness or nothingness or even inconsequential. So quite simply then, to take the name in vain is to treat it as something that is easily dismissed. It's to take it lightly. So we violate the third commandment when we act as if the name of God does not mean anything when we act as if the name that which we bear is just another name, when we treat it as emptiness and nothingness without due reverence and honor and fear. So if the commandment is broken in taking the name lightly, and more on that in a minute, then it's fulfilled in taking it with a weightiness appropriate to its worth. Rather than taking the name in vain... We are to hallow it. The Lord's Prayer, Matthew chapter 6, verse 9. Pray then in this way. Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. 
Now, we don't use the term hallowed very much these days, and I think that's telling. It means to honor someone or something as holy. And if the word hallow has fallen from our vocabulary, it's probably because we don't hallow things anymore. Nearly everything has been reduced to a profane status, simply the sum of its cause and effects. But we'll get more to that next week. In today's vernacular, to hallow, it might mean to make something special or to treat it as uncommon. Common things are treated in a common way. Uncommon things are treated in an uncommon way. The more common the object, the more common the treatment. The more uncommon the object, the more uncommon the treatment. So most days are common days. There's nothing inherently special about them, and so business goes on as usual. But there are also holidays or holy days. These days are uncommon. They're set apart from the rest. On these days, we don't work, but instead plan celebrations with our loved ones. We have parades in the streets and hold special services in our churches. Holidays are uncommon, therefore they're treated in an uncommon way, with a unique privilege. You might say there's a sanctity about these days. Now this applies in many directions. A seasoned hunter who has seen many bucks throughout his day, eventually they cease to excite his awe, and they become mundane to him. Until one day, uh, scamping across his view comes a 14-pointer, and immediately he's reduced to a little boy again. Pigeons and finches are everywhere. We hardly notice them. But when, say, an eagle visits our property, we're rendered speechless in its majesty and fierce glory. The uncommon calls forth a different uncommon response. So, that's what it means, at, at least in some respect, to hallow the name. God is singular. There is none like him. And therefore, we are to treat his name unlike we would anything else. It cannot be taken up in a merely normal or commonplace way like so many other things in our lives. Now, it's hard to recognize this because we are hardened by sin, but standing before the divine presence, our response would be anything but common and mundane. Anything but flippant and normal, we'd be reduced, like Isaiah, to dust and ashes. God is holy. Therefore, his name is to be hallowed. It's to be treated as holy. Philippians chapter 2, verses 9 and 10. God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth. Now, the English word for glory glory is Hebrew. In the Hebrew, rather, is uh, kavod, or, yeah, I think that's how you say it. And it means heaviness or burden. So the same word for heaviness is the same word for glory. There are things that lack glory, and therefore they can be taken lightly and treated lightly. They don't have a heaviness and weightiness about them. But anything possessing glory, heavy with divine majesty, cannot be treated in such a manner. It has its own 
gravitational force to it almost. There's a weightiness about it that demands our attention and regard. And it's God's name that is invested with ultimate glory. It's it's God's name that possesses this ultimate weightiness. Psalm chapter 8, verse 1, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth who have displayed your splendor above the heavens. Psalm 29, verses 1 and 2, Ascribe to the Lord, O sons of the mighty, ascribe ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Worship the Lord in holy array. In order, therefore, to obey the third commandments needed from us is a deep recognition of the name that we're bearing, right, of the name that's been bestowed upon us in baptism, the name at which the mountains melt like wax, at which demons tremble, at which the entire creation breaks out into praise, the name above all names, not only in this age, but in the ages to come, the endlessly glorious and beautiful name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. So bearing this name in vain is truly a grave dishonor. And because we bear the name with us at all times, every sin is a sin against God's holy name that he's given to us. Illicit Sexual activity, Amos tells us, is to profane the holy name, to swear falsely in the name. The holiness code tells us is to make it common. And the other prophets add many other infractions to the list. And all that is breaking the commandment in its most universal scope, right? We bear it, and so really everything we do is, a, is some reflection upon the name to one degree or another. Right, the name being profaned implicitly in our lives. But there are more particular violations um, of the third commandment that we need to pay attention to. So allow me to list three, and we'll move through these rather quickly. We break the commandment when we take the Lord's name, take up the Lord's name, rather, in service of what is false, of what is frivolous, and what is phony. So those three things, false, frivolous, and phony. In respect to what is false, we break the third commandment when we attach the name, the name of God, to any lie or half-truth or any ill-conceived purposes. Now, this obviously includes perjury and taking oaths that we don't intend on keeping, putting our hand on the Bible saying, I swear to tell the truth, nothing but the truth, so on and so forth. It obviously includes that, but maybe closer to home, it includes using the Lord's name to ascribe a false sense of authority to our ideas and plans and opinions. Phil Riken, in his commentary on the Exodus, says the following, A more serious way to break the third commandment is by using God's name to advance our own agenda. Some Christians say, the Lord told me to do this, or worse, they say, the Lord told me to tell you to do this. This is false prophecy. God has already said whatever, needs to, whatever he needs to say. Of course, there is also an inward leading of the Holy Spirit, but this is only an inward leading, and it should not be misrepresented as an authoritative word from God. Now, I've made this 
my I, an aim to keep this in mind when leading uh, the church. I suspect my role might be easier, at least to some degree, if I started using this language. The Lord told me, and God has given me this vision. And I could very easily attach divine authority to my plans and vision for the church and get many people to buy into it. As we move forward, I might say to you, will you join me in obedience to the Lord? And thus, ever so subtly, my plans, what I want, becomes equated with your obedience when I take the name in vain. But pay attention, this language is everywhere. Because it's easy to get people moving when you can ascribe divine authority to your plans. Leaders push their vision and their plans by attaching the name to them. It's disguised as giving people a greater purpose, providing them with something greater to buy into. But more often than not, it's simply a means for the one in leadership to accrue more power and influence to themselves. Right. So we don't want to do that. We don't want to ascribe the Lord's name to our plans and visions uh, because you see the problem. Very easily, they're invested with divine authority. And of course, this applies personally too. Right? It's one thing to hear from God, but it's another thing to use that as a trump card against all sound wisdom. The moment a believer claims, God told me, all discussion is shut down. Once the name has been invoked, no one can argue with it, right? There's, there's nothing to say. Uh, and of course, we're not against hearing from God, but always tempering that with good wisdom around us. Now, I think, however, there's nowhere more obvious than uh, this infraction is nowhere more obvious than in our political discourse. The liberality with which we attach the name to our political views is downright blasphemous. But we're not going to talk about that right now. So, that's in service of what is false. Now, the third commandment can also be broken in service of what is frivolous. Now, this violation is more obvious. Using God's name as a punchline in a joke or carelessly uh, whisking our way through prayer Um, or using even our Christian identity uh, for some sort of social gain with other people. These seem like minor infractions, and maybe compared to the other ones, they are. But the truth is, our speech sets the tone. Where it goes, we go. And thus taking the name in vain this way usually does not stay this way, but proceeds to other ways of taking the name in vain. So we ought to be careful about how we use God's name in that manner. And then lastly, the commandment can be broken uh, when we serve the name in a phony manner. And so really what we mean by this is simply that hypocrisy is also a violation of the name. Right? You know, you honor me with your mouths, but your hearts are far from me, that kind of thing. It's not enough simply to do the right things, uh, to praise, to listen to the Word, to observe the Supper, but they must be done with a sincere heart um, in honest devotion. So in everything we do, most especially, though, our service to God, we are to regard the name with uh, due weightiness and glory. And on and on we can go, right? But it's not really my purpose here to 
uh, enlist every infraction as much as it is to get us to see the weightiness of God's name, the glory of God's name. Because when, when, when that takes over, everything else follows, right? We don't have to list all the infractions or really worry about those because our focus is elsewhere in glorifying the name. Everything follows from that. Now, here's the thing. Carrying the name proves to be too great a burden for us. Our knees buckle beneath the weight. We cannot but take God's name in vain. It is exceedingly weighty, and we are exceedingly weightless. And though at times we might ascribe to the Lord the glory due His name, it's never as sincere and unflagging as we might hope. And we all know this. The Scripture says, All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So he's saying we're blasphemers, all of us, every one. We haven't carried the name like we ought to have. And of course, this is where our Lord comes in. Jesus teaches us to pray, hallowed be thy name. But in truth, he is the fulfillment of his own prayer. The Father's name cannot but be blasphemed by us and treated as emptiness by us, deceived as we are in ascribing weightiness to weightless things. But Jesus, he takes up the name. Rather, he is the name. He rescues it from emptiness and profanity, proclaiming to all the world, in word and deed, the true weightiness of God's name. The temple had fallen into disrepute and corruption. It was greed and avarice and false worship to some extent, yet no one possessed, and all the people, the zeal to do anything about it, to stand up to the leaders and to say anything. Blasphemy was tolerated. The name of God was made common and profane. No one cared to act except Jesus. He was consumed with zeal for the place where his Father's name rested. And to us, his actions, driving out the money collectors, turning over tables, crafting a cord, and putting the animals to flight, seems outrageous and disproportionate. Could he have not been more judicious and even-handed about it, going through the proper channels of authority? Now, if that seems the case, it's only because in comparison to him, the name means so little to us. He acted with a severity and brazenness appropriate to the name. He had zeal, and therefore he acted as such. But his jealousy for God's name was not only manifested in his life, but more perfectly in his death. John chapter 12, verses 27 and 28. This is literally... I believe, days before Jesus' death, according to John's chronology. Now my soul has become troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? But for this purpose I came, into the, I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice out of heaven, a voice came out of heaven, I have glorified it, and I will glorify it 
again. So the hour has come. The purpose for which Christ had entered the world is at hand. And he deliberates before his crucifixion. What shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? He closes the door on evasion, on scurrying away, on saving his life, but dishonoring the name. Instead, he proclaims, staring very clearly at his destiny, Father, glorify your name. In other words, in his death, the name, the name of God will finally be glorified as it deserves. And so it must be understood that Christ's death is not primarily for us to remove our guilt and our transgression. Instead, it is primarily an offering to the Father. Now, we're involved in that, but it's primarily about Jesus' love for the Father. It's an offering not merely to avert wrath and turn away anger on our fall, our sin, but it's an offering of obedience. The cross is the culmination of a life lived for the glory of God's name. And so the crucifixion is the glorification of the name because on it, Christ renders obedience worthy of the name. He bears the name in its full weight. He doesn't buckle beneath it, and on the cross it crushes him. He gives his life that the name of God may be adorned with praise and beauty and glory. And it is. Because Jesus gave over his very life in devotion to the name of God, we stand here praising and honoring the name. He is the true name bearer. He is the true image, and we are in him. He carries the name for us. And so our blasphemies and our vanities are forgotten underneath the shelter of his perfect offering to the Father. So, what then? Having trusted that, the, that Christ is the name-bearer, the only one to straighten his back beneath it and to carry it properly, putting our faith in him first, what remains for us now? now I think first and foremost, we have the responsibility to make restitution wherever possible. As we've said, it's inevitable we will bring dishonor upon the name in our actions. And when that happens, be it among family or co-workers or friends or even strangers, it's our, rep- our responsibility to clear the name of, com- of complicity, to vindicate the name of God from our actions. And so that means asking for forgiveness. Um, it means owning up to our actions and humbling ourselves before others. Now again, this is the daily fare for those who bear the name. If we want to take responsibility for our successes, we must also take responsibility for our failures. The name of God is magnified in our costly obedience, but also in our costly repentance. The name of God is blasphemed and considered a byword today, not because the world is implacably set against it, though that's true, but more so because we have carried the name so lightly ourselves. Repentance is in order. And it may not be that there is one particular instance, some identifiable, 
identifiable conversation or um, infraction in the presence of others, but instead it may be simply taking the name in vain by omission, a more general pattern of negligence and and just kind of shrinking back from our role to be um, the image bearer to the people around us. Whatever you do, says the Spirit, in word or deed, do all, do all of it in the name of the Lord Jesus. So, after making restitution and doing what we need to do, right, to clear the name, asking for forgiveness, kind of making sure that our obedience isn't attached to, or disobedience isn't attached to God's name, um, then uh, I think maybe what we should do is pray these words. This is Psalm um, chapter 86, verse 11. It says, Teach me your way, O Lord. I will walk in your truth. Unite my heart to fear your name. Unite my heart to fear your name. So here's the thing. The name of God proves to be too weighty, not because it is too weighty, but because there are internal cracks in our constitution. The weighty name of God placed upon fractured human nature exasperates that human nature. It widens those cracks and deepens the fissures and ultimately crumbles that human nature because marred by sin. It can't bear God's name, bear God's name properly. So if we're ever to carry the name of God with external integrity among our family and friends and co-workers and etc., we need internal integrity. In other words, we need our hearts to be united to fear the name of God. Because only single, a single-minded heart can carry the name. A duplicitous heart might carry the name sporadically, here and there in moments of inspiration, but it'll always set it down in pursuit of vain things. It's, the heart's not united yet. There's still a desire for these other things. So the heart needs to be united. And most importantly, our efforts need to be undergirded by the mighty working of the Spirit. It's He alone that can grant us an understanding of God's weighty name. And without that, a heart weighed down and lifted up by the divine glory, all our efforts are going to sputter out and end and in really the same place where they began. Because how can we carry the name when the name is not our desire, right? How, how can we glorify the name when to glorify the name is not what we really want? So our efforts are doomed until the Spirit awakens us and ministers the name to our hearts, it unites our hearts um, in the process. So, having done all that, having made restitution, having made this prayer uh, really a daily thing, then all there's left to do is to go out and to do it, to carry the name. God's name is not glorified in a vacuum, but in the presence of others. Wherever you are, wherever you find yourself, you're there for a reason. And that reason is that God's name might be hallowed in you, in your words and your example to others. As we close, listen to the Apostle's words in 2 Corinthians chapter 2. He says, But thanks be to God 
who always leads us in triumph in, triumph in Christ and manifests through us the sweet aroma of the knowledge of God in every place. For we are the fragrance of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To the one an aroma from death to death, to the other an aroma from life to life. And who is adequate for these things? So we are, as it were, a holy candle, burning for the name and diffusing the fragrance of God to everyone in our presence. Now, to those who are being saved, the, pre- the, the aroma that comes from our lives is an aroma from life to life. Edification, encouragement, leading them further on their path toward the Lord. But to those who are perishing, that same aroma will be an aroma from death to death. And that sweet aroma that arises from our lives is the knowledge of God, the apostle says. And so for some around us, it's a witness for them. Your example, your words, carrying the name is an example for them, bringing them to Christ in the first place or else encouraging them in their faith. Or it's a witness against them. God doesn't always put us in places to bear fruit, but sometimes to, like the prophets, be a witness against people. But here's the thing. There must be a witness. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid to bear God's name. Because that name that you carry and beautifying it in the presence of others, glorifying God's name in their midst, is worth whatever passing ridicule they may cast at you. Concern yourselves not with their weightless opinions. Really, who cares? What does that matter? But with the weighty name that you bear. Remember that. So who is adequate for these things, the apostle says? Right, really, who's adequate to bear the name of God? Indeed, what a calling it is that we've been called with. Image bearers, name carriers, a royal priesthood and a holy nation. What can we say to these things? The name has been bestowed upon us, and therefore may we carry it well. And may we return it spotless and glorified to the one who gave it to us on the day we meet him. Let's pray.